please have open before you that passage which we read a moment ago from Genesis 29. We'll be sticking to it very, very closely this evening, so it'll be great to have it open before you. Let us pray. Father God, we have just sung together of your presence which is here with us just now. We've remembered that you come to us to cleanse and to heal and to minister your grace. Lord, we know that one of the chief ways in which you do that is through your word as you speak to us by your spirit. We pray that you'd come and you'd speak to us just now. Uh, Let the ancient word, the age-old story of Jacob, come alive uh, and let your word speak powerfully to us as we seek to learn more of you and how to be faithful followers of Jesus. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. A couple of weeks ago when we last looked together at the life of Jacob, we came to a very, very significant chapter for him in his life. It it begins in chapter 28 with Jacob finally receiving his father's blessing. If you remember back to chapter 27, it was the chapter of all the, the family feuding and scheming. But in chapter 28, Isaac finally gives his blessing to his son Jacob and does what God would have had him do all along. But no sooner has the blessing fallen on Jacob than he has to leave home. As soon as the words of blessing are heard, he flees home. He goes with two, two slightly different, or well, two very different reasons. He has to leave on the one hand because his brother is going to kill him. So, he's, he's leaving to flee the murderous rage of Esau. If you remember... Esau will will blame him for the years to come for stealing his birthright. But Jacob leaves home with another thing in mind. He sets out for Haran in particular to his mother's family because he's going in search of a wife. His parents didn't want him to marry a Canaanite, the the people among whom they were living. So he makes a 500-mile journey to Haran in search of a wife. It was on this journey... A couple of weeks ago, this this fugitive running into an unknown future that God meets with Jacob. He appears to him in a dream. He shows him a ladder that connects heaven and earth. And God, in that dream, is showing him something that's more real than what he sees when he's awake. He shows him that heaven and earth are connected. They're not two separate spheres. God is not far off, but is here with us wherever we are. God spoke to Jacob too, and he renewed all the promises, the old promises that he'd made to Abraham. He made some new personal promises to Isaac, sorry, to Jacob. And there's a lovely moment in chapter 28 where Jacob responds. For the first time that we can tell, he 
speaks of God as being his God. Previously, he had thought of God as being Abraham's God and Isaac's God. But for the first time, Jacob speaks of God as his God. We left Jacob at the end of chapter 28, and he's at an interesting point. He's still crooked. Remember, Jacob is the deceiver. Everything we've seen of his character up to that point, he's a complete crook. There's much still to be done in his life, but he's now met with God. God has promised to be his God, and Jacob's responded saying, yes, you'll be my God. Jacob's still crooked. There's a lot that God needs to do in his life, but he is up and running in the life of faith. And I think it's at this point that Jacob starts to become very interesting to us. All those of us who have begun to follow Jesus Christ, because we're like Jacob, we've met with God. We have heard the promises of God to us, and we have even responded saying, yes, God, you're now my God. But like Jacob, we're still crooked. There's still much that needs to be done in our lives. We've met with God, and we're up and running in the life of faith. So let's pick up the story now here in chapter 29. Jacob's been traveling. We don't know how long. We're not told. And he arrives at some place. We don't know where. The narrator simply tells us that it's the land of the eastern people. We read right away that he he sees a well. Uh, And if you've been paying attention to these Genesis stories, uh, that that might uh, catch your attention. In a previous generation, you see, Abraham's servant had gone in search of a wife, and he had found himself at a well. Wasn't it at a well that Abraham's servant first met Rebekah? So whenever we find Jacob on a journey looking for a wife and he sees a well, suddenly we're all ears. We're thinking, ha, something might happen here. Let's watch. For some reason that becomes clear only as the narrative unfolds, the narrator goes on to tell us about the daily ritual that plays itself out at this well. He tells us in verse 3 that when all the flocks were gathered there, the shepherds would roll the stone away from the well's mouth and water the sheep. Then they'd return the stone to its place over the mouth. Actually, what he's describing here is totally commonplace. Huge stones were used to cover the mouths of these wells. Uh, they, were doing it, they did that to keep the wells clean, to stop people from falling into them when they weren't being used. But actually, th- there's another reason which becomes very clear in this story. The, wells, the stones were hugely of a massive size, and that prevented uh, one-off shepherds from arriving and using a well that belonged to this community. The well could only be used when enough of the shepherds of the local community arrived together to, to move the stone from its place. So that's, that's what's going on here in this slightly strange story about the well. So Jacob arrives at this well, and we discover in verse 4 that he doesn't know where he is. He, he just doesn't know. So he has to ask the shepherds. He asks them, um, where are you from, guys? Haran, they tell him. Now, that's a coincidence. Jacob set out on a 500-mile journey through probably not very well 
uh, landscaped uh, and roaded terrain. He's set off without a sat-nav, so he hasn't really much of a clue where he is. He asks these guys where he is, and coincidentally, he's ended up in exactly the place that he's been trying to reach. Now, he knows why he's come to Haran. It's to, to find Laban. So he asks after his uncle, fellas, you don't happen to know a guy called Laban? Yeah, we know him. Is he doing okay? Yeah, he's doing rightly, the, the shepherds tell him. And here comes his daughter, Rachel, with the sheep. Let's think about this for a second before we charge into to Jacob's meeting here with Rachel. There's something going on here very, very quietly, but it merits our attention. God's providence is at work here. Although Jacob doesn't know where he is, although God's guiding him in ways that he doesn't quite see himself, God's brought him into exactly the right place at the right time. We all, well, I'm going to say we all know, but maybe, maybe only some of us, uh, this, this might give away uh, my interest in, in things uh, not quite up to date. We all know Humphrey Bogart's famous line from the film Casablanca. Um, when Ingrid Bergman walks into his bar in North Africa, of all the gin joints in all the towns in all the world, she walks into mine. He's talking about a huge coincidence that's happened. This woman from a previous life of his suddenly arrives in the most unlikely of places. Well, the same thing's going on here. The same level of coincidence. Of all the, the wells in all the towns in all the world, at the right moment to meet these shepherds and at just the moment when Rachel arrives, Jacob arrives at this well. God is at work here. Jacob doesn't see it, but that doesn't make it any less the case. Friends, it seems to me that that's probably more common in the life of faith than we realize. That we go through our days, much as Jacob is going through this particular day, and God is, is overlooking and guiding and just bringing us to the right places and to the right people at the right times. And we don't often know it, but it's happening nonetheless. Like Jacob, we're, we're just not aware always of God's providence. Jacob doesn't see what God's doing, but he sees Rachel, and boy, does he see her. She makes an immediate impression on him. We see that in the next few verses. Jacob, as soon as he's seen her, he wants to get rid of the other shepherds. I don't know if you, you picked that up in the reading. In verse 7, he dispenses with all subtlety because he wants to be on his own with Rachel. Look, fellas, you shouldn't be sitting here at this time of the day, here in the middle of the day. Water the sheep quickly and then get away back off to the fields. Uh, there's still plenty of sunlight for some good feeding. And this is a lovely moment. Um, the, the fellas tell him why they can't. Um, it, it strikes me, do you know that scenario where you're driving along the road and there's roadworks and there's maybe 15 men on the job and 14 of them are leaning on shovels? Well, this is, this is that moment. The fellas tell him, no, no, we can't. Um, you see, 
And then they tell them about the daily ritual that plays itself out at this well. They're sitting around doing nothing. And their excuse is that they can't use the well until all the shepherds have arrived, until the stone has been moved from the mouth of the well. Would love to help you, Jacob, but it's a health and safety issue. We can't move this stone on our own. We need to wait for all the shepherds to arrive. We wouldn't want to do our backs in. There's a little bit of that going on here. And all this time, Rachel's been drawing closer to the well, and the sight of her at close quarters stirs something in Jacob. In verse 10, we read something that's quite incredible in the context. Jacob goes over, and he rolls the stone from the mouth of the well, and he waters his uncle's sheep. Forget about daily rituals at the well. Forget about health and safety. A a supernatural almost uh, amount of strength and energy and passion wells up in Jacob. And if it's going to need a superhuman feat to move his stone, then that's what it'll take and he'll do it. He puts his shoulder to the stone and he rolls it away and he waters Rachel's sheep. What an entrance. I mean, it's the kind of entrance men dream of making into any place where they go where there are women around. What a, this is brilliant. This is good stuff, isn't it, for a Sunday night before Valentine's Day? What, you know? Jacob's been, been struck by Rachel. And here we see the passion that she stirred in him. We read that Jacob goes on to tell Rachel who he is. I'm your Aunt Rebecca's son, and he he kisses her. By the way, that's not as dodgy as it sounds, you know, to kiss somebody within a few minutes of meeting them. That's more of a a cultural way of of meeting a, a relative, a member of your family. He breaks down and he weeps. And actually, it's no wonder. He's been on the road here for for certainly weeks, possibly months, on his own. He's left his own family and that sense of home behind. And here suddenly he meets a woman who's a member of his extended family uh, and a woman who really represents all possibility of, of home and family and a future for him. In a very real sense, Rachel, the daughter of Laban's, the woman he's been looking for all his life. Rachel does, uh, this is good too, Rachel does what any woman would do in the circumstances. She runs to tell her dad about what's happened, about this fella she's met. So we read of her doing that. And Laban's really excited. He, he runs out to meet his nephew, hugs him, kisses him, welcomes him into the family. And the paragraph ends in verse 14 with Laban welcoming Jacob into the family. You're my own flesh and blood. It's brilliant. It's all gone a treat. Jacob has arrived at the place that he'd been journeying to. He's been welcomed into the family, and he's, he's struck up a, a wonderful relationship with Rachel. Some of these Old Testament narratives are really hard to assess. What's actually happened there? Was that a good experience for Jacob? A bad one or just nothing? Just an experience? 
Well, the best way to gain an insight into what's happening here is to compare and contrast this incident at the well with the previous one of Genesis chapter 24, when Abraham's servant met Rebekah at a similar well. I'm not going to ask you to flick back. I'm going to hope that you have some memories of that story uh, to, to make this comparison and this contrast. I'm going to focus on only one contrast because I believe it's the big one and the crucial one. And that's the role of prayer in the encounter. Abraham's servant, whenever he left Abraham and journeyed to go and find a new wife for Isaac, he prayed before he set off on his journey. He prayerfully thought up a a scheme of how he could test whether the woman he would meet would be the right woman. And whenever Rebekah emerged and agreed to come home with him and to be Isaac's wife, he prayed again to thank God for God's leading and guiding and God's help in all of this. From start to finish, the whole thing is bathed in prayer. I think as we come to this incident at the well, we're being asked to assess Jacob in comparison. Unfortunately, we don't read of even one short prayer. Instead, as we've already said, Jacob seems to go through this whole incident blind to God's presence with him and God's work in this situation. Jacob seems to me to be, to be more taken with Rachel's good looks and with his own ways of impressing her and letting her know that he's the man. He's blind to God's presence and there's no prayerfulness in his life. Do you find that disappointing? This is Jacob. The guy who saw the ladder from heaven to earth. Certainly only a matter of of maybe weeks ago in his life. This is is Jacob who, who knows now of this link between heaven and earth that will not be severed. That God is with him in everything he does. Why then does he go through this whole scene without any reference to God? This is Jacob to whom God promised, I'm with you. I'll watch over you wherever you go. I won't leave you until I've done what I've promised. Why is he now acting as though God isn't with him? As though he's been left to his own devices. As though everything that happens to him happens either by chance or by his own engineering. At this point, maybe Jacob's a bit of a disappointment to us. Tracking his progress is a wee bit frustrating. Friends, isn't it true, maybe, that our frustration with Jacob at this point mirrors our frustration with ourselves? You see, we too are people who know of a ladder between heaven and earth. We know of God's presence with us. We have heard a promise from Jesus where he says, Surely I'm with you always, even to the very end of the age. All of this is true for us, and yet there are times and there are places where we live as if God isn't with us, as though he's not part of our lives. For Jacob, it's a really key moment in his life. He is, 
is meeting the woman who will be his wife, and he's doing it without reference to God. But like Jacob, we have, have prayerless and godless places in our lives, and some of them are equally significant. We, we charge into huge decisions about our, our careers, about where we'll live, about our relationships, about our finances, about how we spend our time. We charge into these decisions, and before we know it, we've made them. We've made our new commitments. We've, we've, we've set out our, our, our path for the next years, and we've done it all without reference to God. Friends, Jacob has met with God, yes. He's heard God's promises, yes. But this transformation that God wants to do in his life is going to take time. The habits of a lifetime take a long time to change. It's going to be the same for us. We have begun, many of us, on a life of faith with Jesus But there's much that still needs to change if we're to be transformed into the likeness of Jesus. We might be frustrated as we look at the first half of our passage this evening at Jacob's behavior at the well. But but let's watch now and see what happens. Let's watch for God's transforming work in Jacob's life because it's really beginning to gather momentum. God's providence has brought Jacob into Laban's family. That that seems very clear to us as we've looked at this passage together. Now, you'd imagine if God brings you to a place, it's going to be a good place because God loves us and he does good things for us. Well, the rest of this chapter and the rest of this passage might cause us to rethink all of that. This place where Jacob ends up is no bed of roses. It's a crucible It's a place where he's going to be melted down, broken, and reformed. It's going to happen in in very intense emotional and relational settings. Probably the most intense place of all, family life. Jacob's going to be changed here in Haran. He's going to leave here a changed man. He's no longer going to be called Jacob, which means deceiver. Instead, He's going to be called Israel, a man who struggled with God and prevailed. Before we jump into this section very quickly, much of what God's going to do in Jacob's life, he's going to do through Laban. I wonder, you probably don't have an overly well-developed picture in your head of who Laban is. Uh, Certainly by the time we finish these chapters, you'll have a good idea of who he is. But let's think for quickly what what we already know about Laban. Well, already we know something that should have us wary of Laban. He's a, a selfish schemer. In that regard, he's very much like his sister, Rebecca, and of course, like, like Jacob himself. We first met Laban in chapter 24. It was at that incident we've already mentioned a few times this evening. Abraham's servant arrives at Laban's family. He's looking for a daughter of the family whom he can bring home to marry Rebecca. And Laban rushes out to meet Abraham's servant. Do you know when it is he rushes out? His ears prick up 
when he hears about the wealth that the servant has with him. The first time we meet Laban, we we see him characterized in a way that's going to be totally uh, uniform throughout his life. Laban's a guy who's out to see what he can get from anyone with whom he comes in contact. His behavior here in this chapter this evening ends up being exactly the same. As soon as he hears about the newcomer, he rushes out to meet them. Why? To see what he can get out of them. This time, it's not the report of Jacob's wealth that has Laban rushing out to meet him. It's the report of his strength. He hears about a guy who single-handedly moves the stone from the well, and immediately Laban's saying, right, just think of what that guy could do if he was working for me, working for my farm, looking after my flocks and herds. Laban's out, as he always is, to see what he can get for himself. The evidence against Laban stacks up very, very quickly in these next verses, and we'll race through them. First of all, Laban does something in in verse 15, which seems quite innocent at first. He, He welcomes Jacob into the family, but then he keeps him at arm's length. He refuses to really welcome him. You see, what he does is he offers to pay Jacob for the work that he does, but he never once offers to allow Jacob to make his own way in the world. He always wants to keep him as a hired hand, as an employee, but never as a member of the family growing a household of his own. Laban wants to take advantage. He also, and we see it very strongly in these verses, he exploits Jacob's love for Rachel. I don't know how you would assess this, but some of the commentators say that that Jacob's offer to work for seven years was a very, very generous one. Um, Jacob, I don't think, wants to fail. He wants to make sure he, he gets this woman of his dreams. He's desperate to have Rachel. But Laban will take advantage of him. If the offer is overly generous, Laban will take it. He takes whatever he can get. He's milking Jacob for all he's worth. Jacob works, we're told, for seven years for Rachel. But we're told that they only seemed like a few days to him because of his love for her. I'm not a woman, so I don't know how that verse sounds. Did that warm any hearts out there in the congregation? Would you like a man who'd say something like that about you? In British culture in 2007, women are told to buy L'Oreal bottles of shampoo because they're worth it. They're worth a bottle of shampoo in Britain in 2007. But here's Jacob says this woman's worth seven years of of hard labor. She's worth every day, every moment. Isn't it great? The seven years that seemed like only a few days for Jacob were soon up. So Jacob went to Laban. He said, right, time's up. Give me Rachel so that she can be my wife. And Laban says, yeah, leave it with me. I'll look after all the arrangements. So he He organizes the the dress. Now, he makes sure it has a veil. That's going to come in handy for him in a moment. He books the reception, and he he prepares the feast. The the Hebrew word here about this feast, I couldn't understand how this whole scheme worked. 
but as I read up on it a wee bit, I, I began to get a picture of how it might have worked. The Hebrew words here that describes this feast, it, it tells us that this, uh, this wedding reception wasn't an orange juice and schlur affair. This was a drinking fest. Everybody at this, uh, at this particular reception uh, would have had as much as they wanted to drink and more. So it seems that, that Jacob probably overdid it a wee bit. And we can assume that he maybe wasn't in full control of his faculties. Laban plies Jacob with wine. He ensures that his daughter's veiled. We know that from the culture of the time. And he does it all at night time. And all of a sudden, when you bring those strands together, you can begin to see how this incredible scam might have worked. He manages to marry Jacob off to the wrong daughter. I mean, that's just one of the great stories in the Bible. I think verse 25 is just one of the dramatic moments in the whole of the Bible. Like, you'd love to be a filmmaker uh, with this. You know, as, as the night recedes, and as the dawn begins to break in, a hungover Jacob fumbles under the sheets. He, he turns his new wife towards him so that he can enjoy her beauty one more time. And then he turns and he looks. Ah! It's Leah! The one with the soft eyes who isn't, as far as we know, beautiful in form. Can you imagine that? I'm imagining that Jacob would would just have jumped from that bed almost, you know, almost unconsciously. Something would have just thrown him out of that bed and he would have been off, off looking for Laban. And, and that's exactly what we discover here. He, he rushes straight to Laban He finds him, what have you done to me? I served you for Rachel, didn't I? Why have you deceived me? And of course, there's a massive irony here. We need only to flick back a couple of chapters to find Esau making the same accusation against Jacob. He stands before blind Isaac and he said, isn't he rightfully called Jacob? He deceived me these two times. He took my birthright, and now he's taken my blessing. In in Genesis 27, we have a blind man, and he's tricked regarding two sons. He's tricked into giving his blessing to the wrong son. In Genesis 29, we have a man who's blind because it's nighttime, because the woman's veiled and because he's drunk, but he's just as blind and he's tricked regarding two daughters. And the wrong one presents herself in front of him. Now it's Jacob who's been tricked. Jacob is beginning to see what life is like on the other side. The deceiver has been deceived. Friends, God is beginning here to to form Jacob's character. And he's using a scoundrel, a complete scoundrel in Laban to do it. This process isn't going to be quick and, and it's not going to be pleasant for Jacob. 
There's nothing nice about this. But this is the place God has brought him to. This is the work that God is doing in Jacob's life. And one day, Jacob's going to end up a totally different man. No longer a deceiver because he's left all deception behind. Do you believe that God can change you? This question came up at our discipleship group this week. We were just talking about what it means to follow Jesus Christ, and we we asked the question, do we still believe that God changes lives, or have we given up on that? Are we now people who who say, well, that's just the way I am. Friends, the biblical record and the call of Jesus Christ both agree that God changes lives. God longs to change my life and yours. Let's keep an eye out for what he'll do in the life of Jacob. We're very nearly finished here. Laban, he's just, oh goodness, he comes out here and he, he makes his excuses. Oh, sorry, son. That's just the way we do things around here. We can't marry off the, the older daughter, uh, or sorry, the younger daughter until the older one's married off. Um, and then he comes in with suggestions, and the speed with which he makes a suggestion leads you thinking this was his plan all along. He suggests and he says, listen, work for me another seven years and you can have Rachel anyway. This is what Laban's been working up to all along. In one fell swoop, Laban has got 14 years' work out of Jacob. Jacob has been taken to the cleaners not once but twice by this deceptive father-in-law. Jacob's in in a difficult, difficult place here. He's met his match, but we believe that God is in even this. There's a wonderful glimpse of God's grace in this story that I don't want you to overlook. We're we're almost finished, as I say. Poor Leah. Can you imagine what it is to be in Leah's shoes? Her father shows that he doesn't love her. He, He gives her away in what's really just a business transaction. She ends up with a, a new husband who doesn't want her. And yet somehow, in a way that that totally defies human logic, she's being drawn right into the center of God's plans. Do you know what happens to Leah? She becomes the mother of Judah. That means that she becomes the the mother of, of who? King David? Greatest king ever in the history of God's people? And when you're the mother of Judah and you're the mother of King David, what does that make you? That makes you an ancestor of Jesus Christ, the Son of God who came to bring salvation into the world. These men are treating Leah like like a worthless chapel. But by the grace of God, she finds herself at the center of of what God's doing to change the world. There's always grace there. Always. When God is at work.
for all that we've said about Jacob and all his failings in this chapter, there are actually a few encouraging signs that God's at work in him. First of all, there's his commitment. Do you remember when we looked at Esau, we said that Esau was a man who didn't understand how to value things? He, he sold his birthright for a pot of stew. Well, Jacob's different. He's a man who's committed. He will work the 14 years to, to be with the woman that he loves. Early in, uh, even in these early stages of his walk with God, Jacob shows a wonderful quality here. He, he seems to be trustworthy. Laban, who clearly isn't trustworthy himself, you'll notice that the slowest person to trust another person is the person who is not trustworthy themselves. So there's a wonderful endorsement of Jacob here because the untrustworthy Laban trusts him. He's seen how he works. He's seen how he looks after the, the flocks under his care because he's willing to give his daughter Rachel in advance of the second seven years of work. There's something happening in Jacob. He's becoming a man of character, the life of God being born into him. Let's finish just now for this evening. As I reflected on, on this whole chapter, and there's a lot of Old Testament passages that are like this, the thing that struck me most of all was the absence of God. God's not mentioned in this chapter. We've, we've peeled back the, the curtain and, and looked for signs of his work here and there, but, but he's not explicitly mentioned in anything that he's gone on here. And that seems to me, well, that's, that's hard to get our heads around. Particularly for Jacob, who's just seen the ladder, who's just been shown that heaven is open to us, who's just heard the voice of God. He's seen all that. He's known God's immediate presence. And now all of a sudden, God's not there, or at least not in any way that he can see. What do we make of that? Do we believe that God has deserted him? No. That's not the, the assessment that we come up with in the end. We've already noticed in the first half of the chapter how God was guiding Jacob and leading him. And what about the second part of the chapter? Where, where was God in this, this stuff with Laban? This Laban stealing seven and then another seven years of Jacob's life. Where was God in that? Was God in that? Well, again, we believe that he was. In fact, incredible as it may seem, we believe that God brought Jacob into this place. That he brought him into Laban's family. That he brought him into a place where he could experience these terrible times and difficult trials. And he did all of that for Jacob's good and for his own glory. There are people here tonight who think God is absent. There are others here tonight who are going through trials the likes of which they can barely talk about because the burden weighs so heavy on them. 
Is God absent in all of that? Well, from the life of Jacob tonight, from God's Word itself, I want to ask you to take heart if you're in that place yourself. Recognize that the promises of God to Jacob stand true. The the vision that he saw hasn't lost validity. God is still with Jacob. God's promises to be with him do still hold true, even when he can't see it himself, and even when he has Laban's ruining his life. Friends, God is doing wonderful things in us tonight. He's doing it at that time when we can't see that he's there, when we can't bear the burdens that he's given us. But we believe that he's there. Paul tells the believers in Corinth of this wonderful thing that God's doing. He's transforming us into his likeness in ever-increasing glory. Friends, that's what's happening in this dodgy situation in Haran. And it's what's happening in, in our homes and in our workplaces and in our difficult relationships, our fraught marriages. God is working there. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for the wonderful honesty and integrity of your word. Thank you that in this passage this evening, we have seen Jacob struggle. We've seen him struggle to see your presence with him. We've seen him struggle in the face of huge trials. And yet, Lord, we thank you for the assurance that somewhere, even in all of this, you are present. Lord, would you impress this truth on our hearts in a way that we will not forget? Make us people who walk through our lives, those times when you seem absent, those times when our burdens threaten to take us under entirely. Bring us through those times trusting in your unfailing love and in your presence with us. Lord, thank you that you go with us. Remind us of that this evening and give us the strength to walk a few more steps with you this week. Amen.